now, without further ado, Chamath Paliapatia is founder and CEO of Social Capital, which is a technology-driven investment firm whose mission is to advance humanity by solving the world's hardest problems. Before founding Social Capital, Chamath was a member of the senior executive team at Facebook and held leadership roles at Mayfield Fund, AOL, and Winamp. He was born in Sri Lanka, grew up in Canada, and gradu graduated with a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Waterloo. Chamath is also an owner and director of the NBA's Golden State Warriors. That's what gets the use. Moderating the conversation will be DJ, co-founder of Athos. DJ is also from Sri Lanka, also studied ECE at the University of Waterloo, and his company Athos actually started as his senior year design project right here at Waterloo, which Chamath found while he was checking out the senior project showcase. He ended up funding the company, moving DJ and his team down to Silicon Valley, and the rest is history. Please join us in welcoming DJ and Chamath. My hips, my hips. So walking up here, I was thinking about like, the first time I heard about Chamath, which was actually when I was doing a co-op term at BlackBerry. And I was trying to add my manager on LinkedIn. And I, I saw this guy on the other side. It's like, some brown guy, but he was working at Facebook. I was like, shit. He went to Waterloo, he's brown, and he's a VP at Facebook? I guess we, well, you, can, you can do something from Waterloo. But, <laughs> but, but for the rest of us who don't know you, how'd you get started from being a bum at Waterloo, barely passing class, to Chamath, I mean, fucking polypidia? Yeah, the, <laughs> the, barely, the barely passing class part is the most accurate. I mean, one of my best friends, one of the best men, uh, uh, this guy Herman Pack, who's here, um, was literally my savior. And it's not that Herman was particularly smart, because he was also an idiot. Um, <laughs> but his two sisters had done double E before us. Lab and notes. so we inherited every lab, every test, every exam, everything you could have imagined. I was still on academic probation. Remember, work I mean, smart, he, not hard. He was top of his class. He was top of our class. I was on academic probation. I got a letter from uh, the Dean of Engineering at the time who also taught ECE 100, this guy Sujit Chowdhury. And the letter said, you have passed because of your labs. And I thought, thank <laughs> God for Jane and Julia Peck because otherwise I would have been back home in Ottawa and I would have completely ruined my life. Um, I mean, look, I, I've, I've told this story, so I'll give the very short version, but uh, my parents moved from Sri Lanka to Canada. My dad worked uh, for the embassy of Sri Lanka. And uh, after four years, when he was supposed to go back through a bunch of conditions, one was the war and two was um, he was, his life was threatened. We uh, claimed refugee status and we stayed and we lived in Ottawa. Um, I had two younger, I have two younger sisters and then um, I actually wasn't even supposed to go to Waterloo because I didn't think I could get in, to be completely honest. I had pretty terrible marks um, in high school. So this is a repetitive theme here. Um, <laughs> we'll <laughs> figure out how you got get to where you are right now I had really, with that theme. No, because I'm charming. I'm charming. I'm, charming. I'm, a, good, I'm a nice guy. Uh, Self-proclaimed. But uh, no, uh, I, had, I, had, I had bad marks. Um, and so I didn't really know what to do. Um, and so I applied, when I applied for schools in Ontario, you have to pick three and you rank them. And I put Waterloo last. And I was like, well, let me put my safety school first. So I put Western. And then, um, <laughs> no offense to anybody from Western. That was my safety I mean, school too. You guys are probably much better looking than us, but <laughs> you're all now working for us. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> um, um, so I applied to Western and then I applied to Queens. Um, and the first acceptance I got was from Queens. And I thought, man, this is crazy. How did I get into Queens? Um, and I had taken it because I just didn't expect Waterloo to accept me. And it was like a Monday, and I was going to mail it in by a Wednesday. And in this case, my laziness completely paid off because before I mailed in the acceptance, I got the acceptance to Waterloo, and it I mean, obviously changed my life. I worked for a bunch of random companies um, during my co-op terms. Um, so that wasn't particularly eventful, except that I um, worked at a bank. And then after I graduated, I, was, I, I, I got a full-time job there. And it was this constant feeling of not like it just didn't fit. Um, and I quit. 
which totally freaked my parents out at the time because we needed the money. I mean, I've, uh, you know, we, we were struggling financially, so I was always helping them. And, and at, by the time when I graduated, I was the, the, almost basically the, the sole breadwinner of our family. And so you know, it was just a thing ever since I was 15. Most of my salary just went back to my family. So it was a thing to leave a job where you had a guaranteed salary. It was quite good um, to move to Silicon Valley and work for a startup. Um, and I worked at a company called Winamp. And my, my biggest reason I joined it was because it was eight other people all at the same age or younger than I. And at the time, I was 22. And the only reason I did it was I, I was just thinking about the risk of working for people smarter than me. And I thought, how could these people know much more than I did? And so we'll all learn together. And that ended up being a defining thing because what I really took risk on was just the process of learning. Yeah. And you very quickly had to become comfortable with being wrong and even more comfortable with being derided for the decisions that internally are, you know, your body is telling you is right for yourself. That's a really hard thing to amplify consistently over time. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't rewarded, quite honestly, because I moved down to Silicon Valley. I was working at this company. It was bought by AOL. AOL was rife with a lot of turmoil because it had had a stock that shot up. It bought Time Warner. Then they were decoupling the merger and all this chaos, people getting fired, businesses getting destroyed. Um, and then finally, something clicked for me, which was I got promoted enough times where I had a chance to then take another shot. And the choice was stay at AOL, where I'd become kind of an executive, um, a young one, 25, 26, um, or leave. And I left, and I went to Mayfield. And then I was like, wow, this is great. I've made it. Oldest venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. Um, and I remember you know, like, thinking to myself, I've just climbed the top of the mountain. And within six months, I'd realized this is not the top of any mountain that I wanted to be at the top of. And um, I had known Mark through that process, and um, I went and I worked uh, at Facebook for, uh, from 2006 to 2011. Um, and then in 2011, I had the same decision, which was, you know, when I left Mayfield, my parents again freaked out. They're like, you're making 250 grand a year now. Like, you don't do that to go make $55,000 a year. What is a startup? What is the Facebook? You know? <laughs> no, it was called the Facebook. And, you know, my dad is like, it is a book of faces? I, I don't get it. Uh, and so, you know, you're dealing with this, but underneath that kind of like humor was a lot of pressure again. Um, and so I didn't know whether that choice was right. And then obviously by 2009 or 10, I was validated. And so at that point, I start to tell myself, like, listen, whenever I have a feeling in my gut, I have to follow it. As chaotic as it may seem to everybody on the outside, um, I'm a reasonably good decision maker if I follow my instincts. 2011, I get to the same kind of decision point because I had been building a product at Facebook that didn't ultimately get launched. I was building a phone. Um, and I woke up one day and I was like, well, if I stay, I'm now only staying for the money. And um, I left and I started Social Capital. Um, and it's crazy. And I, I mean, I'll tell this story now because it's kind of bananas to think about this. but. Um, I had equity that was triggered on the number of users. And ba basically, the incentive was stay to get to a billion MAU, then two billion MAU, whatever. Yeah. And I left at 750 million MAU. And I left enough stock on the table that today, I don't know, somewhere between one and two billion dollars. Could you imagine? That's serious money. Um, and so again, like, you know, my parents didn't understand any of that. My family didn't understand any of that. And so they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, um, I just don't think if I, if I stay, I'm going to become a slave to money because I had lost the passion of figuring out monumental things. I was incrementally kind of iterating on things. Um, and at the same time in 2011, there's a lot of bad things that were starting to happen in the world. You know, if, if you look at sort of like, for example, in the Middle East, like there was a fruit vendor in Tunisia that lit himself on fire. Um, Egypt started to see the rise of like all of this dissent. There was these massive riots in Paris by all these people living in slums. All of a sudden, you would have these targeted bombings everywhere. And I was like, where is all of this hatred and frustration coming from? And now fast forward in the last seven years, what have you seen? It's all a byproduct of this like growing sense of like detachment and disassociation with the human condition. Nobody has 
that respect and compassion that we used to anymore for the people around us. But I was feeling that in 2011. Was that the reason that you decided to change? Yeah, and, and, and I said, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go work at another social network. I wanted to do two things. One was basically see if what I was saying to myself was right, and two was be a part of the solution. And so yeah. I said, let me go and start working on really hard problems again, things that were non-obvious, things that weren't necessarily part of like Silicon Valley, you know, dinner party gossip, but were really about the things that mattered. You know, mental health, cancer, diabetes, climate change, all these things that to me I found really interesting. And I thought if I do something about them, I'll feel productive. And, um, and so that gets me to here, which is what I've been doing for the last seven years. Looking back, did you, like that feeling that you had, like a lot of kids haven't seen that, felt that. What, how would you characterize that? Like, was it like a feeling for like getting bored? Like what is that internal feeling? Like, do you want bigger problems? So this is a, this is a much, very complicated way of explaining it, and I really, really, really implore you to listen to this, okay? Because this has nothing to do with um, goosebumps or uh, something in your stomach. This has everything to do with psychology, and most of the psychology is really around how you grew up, okay? Let me tell you how I manifest when I'm not in balance. And when I'm not in balance, this is when I need to get to balance, which is I need to change something. So what do I do when I'm not in balance? Something in my life that I value is out of whack. It's not fitting. And what happens is I start to feel really insecure and really inferior about myself. And then what do I do? I manifest that by really beating myself up internally, okay? And it's like the negative self-talk and the doubt and then I manifest it by projecting it on the people around me, typically the people that I love or care about, the people I work with, um, the people I'm in a relationship with, um, to make myself feel superior. What I've eventually figured out is it was the pattern that my parents played out themselves on me that I had been playing out with the people around me. Except the way that my parents played it out was because of our poverty and other things, there was depression, there was alcoholism, there was you know, physical abuse, there was all of this stuff. With me, it was much more deeply psychological and nuanced. But that was the feeling when I was out of balance. So it took me a long time. So I listened to my yeah. instincts when I got out of balance and changed, but I couldn't explain it until very recently. So what I would explain it to you is we all are suffering from or benefiting both from the legacy of how we were raised. And it all really dictates your decision-making. As much as you may think it doesn't, it does. At the root cause of all good and bad decisions is sort of your sense of self-worth. And that really comes from these really important years when you were a child and when you were an adolescent and where you were validated largely by parents and then your peer group around you. So in my case, what I have figured out is I care about three things. I care a lot about professional accomplishment, I do. It's a scorecard that helped me save myself and make me feel whole when I felt worthless, okay? I care a lot about sort of like social capital, meaning like not the company I built, <laughs> but the term, right? And what does that term mean? It's a sense of affiliation and belonging to the people around you, right? That the ability to influence and guide and shepherd and be guided and shepherded. And then I care a lot about having a few really deep, profound emotional relationships in my life. I care about that. Um, and so for me, what I've realized is whenever in a situation, I can explain this now, the reason I've changed is because underlying it, one of those three things were not working. And they were not working to such a degree that I was feeling so out of balance that I was basically being in some way, shape or form, projecting onto the people around me, and it was really affecting my happiness, and in turn, their happiness. And I really think at the end of it all, all of us go through that loop infinitely. And what I've been able to do, because I'm fortunate enough to have the time to really think about it, is get to a place to understand it. Um, but it's really important. Um, because if I, at 21 or 22, had even barely scratched the surface of understanding it, 
I probably would have made a lot of different decisions. Or maybe if I had made the same decisions, let's assume I had made the same ones, it would have been with a completely different mental frame, both in the moment and then after the moment. And I'm sure all of you are thinking to yourself, like how different, like of the things that you do to yourself to beat yourself up, how it can get in the way. It's unblocking that that allows you to do everything. And like, I just think like I've been lucky enough to get to a simpler place where I can just put that in a good frame and, and act on it. How do you catch yourself when you get, get in that place? Like, do you have a process for that now? Yeah, and, and now, I mean, like, you know, to be, to be completely honest with you, look, I, I've gone through a very tumultuous year. Um, you know, uh, this past year, which is the culmination of many years of things that didn't feel right, I have had deep, meaningful personal changes in my life. I uh, got divorced. I had deep, meaningful professional changes in my life, which is that I was in the business of making money for many, many other people as well as myself, and I was not in the business anymore of solving hard problems. And so I've had to reconcile and course correct that. Um, I've had realizations around that a lot of the people that I had called my friends was a surrogate family that I had built around me to compensate. And these were all people that were working with me or for me that I was paying in some way. That's not a family. I mean, yeah. respectfully, that's not. Those are colleagues. Friends. Friends. They're not friends. No. <laughs> coworkers? Yeah, they're coworkers. Um, I was about to swear, but I would owe $1,000 to Hack the North. And I'm really trying to. Um, so, so in any event, um, uh, but in any event, the, the point is that um, all of these things changed and um how i catch myself is like I, I i now realize like in that process there's been moments where for example like i'm in a new relationship and um when i was going through a lot of this stuff i would project a lot of this onto her and one day she caught me and she's like hey listen we have to figure this out because this is not you and then i thought about it and then what i really did was i went back and i thought about all the other times that this manifested in my life and how unproductive it was. And it brought me to a place where like, I recognize the physical characteristics of it, which is I feel kind of tense, I feel this thing building up inside me, and then I, and then I, I start to feel like I'm getting short-tempered, and then I'm getting angry, and then I'm, I get bursty, you know, and I'll pick on people. And you know, in the office, it was so funny because like, at Facebook, there's all this lore about me and my behavior there, but fundamentally, it was probably because I was dealing with a lot of stuff that I had never really dealt with. And, um, so now I'm just learning how to, how to find the trigger and slow it down and go back and say, wait, either it's emotional or social or professional. Something is happening that I really care about that is now I'm taking with me and now projecting into the world in a negative, unconstructive way. I got to go figure it out. By the way, this is probably not the conversation you thought you'd have. <laughs> but let me tell you something, okay? I have literally been checking every box that you have been told to check your whole life. And what I'm telling you is at the age of 42, what I've gotten to is, is a realization that this is the most important thing. It gives you the energy to do whatever it is you want to do. Be in a committed relationship, start a business, be a productive coworker or a colleague, be a good friend. None of that is possible without that kind of stuff really and truly. Um, and so I'm just giving you that advice because, you know, look, you're about to start a hackathon. It's fun. Maybe there'll be some great things that come out of it. You'll build some great relationships and friendships. Maybe you get motivated to go and do something in the world. That's amazing. But also take away that this idea, which is that like, there is work that you can do on yourself that puts you in a position to be excellent. And it is thankless work because nobody sees it. Nobody values it. Everybody derides it if you talk about it. And it needs to get destigmatized because we all carry it with us. And the minute you unshackle yourself from it and leave it, you are powerful, and there's nothing you can't do, and that's why it's important. So, cool. So, so a couple of themes that you touched on. One is that about like you basically had a feedback system that you, over time, developed into being able to teach, your, uh, teach yourself into figuring these things out, refining your intuition on when you're gonna react that way. Are there like feedback systems that you've built to help you learn and refine your intuition around like 
the people you hire or the, the ideas you invest in or decisions you make? What are the systems you use? Um, this guy that on my team uh, wrote me a letter this week, and I won't share it with you, but I'll share. Well, I'll share it was a love note. <laughs> Let's violate his confidentiality, guys, because that's fun. Um, no, um, he told me this funny story, which I had forgotten, which is when I first interviewed him, um, I actually only gave him 10 minutes. Um, and I forgot that originally when I was really interviewing a lot of people, my core team, um, I'll just go back to the Facebook example, but my core team at Social Capital is the same way, are just these exceptionally talented human beings and they've gone on to do great things. So it, when I look back, like the thing, one of the things that I'm the most proud of is like, I've really found a way to associate myself with really credible, good people that are capable of doing a lot of things. So how do I not get in my own way, right? And I've, over these last 10 years, one of the first things is like interviewing and talent. Um, I keep these interviews, the initial ones, to as short as possible, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And it may seem brusque and curt, but mostly it's because if I stay too long, I'm gonna fall into their you know, storytelling and their narrative. And what I'm really gonna lose is that, like, that core sense of who they are when they're still initially kind of nervous and like, you know, they're gonna be their true selves. Because it's hard to fake it when you're kind of nervous. It's much easier to fake it when you're like, comfortable. I always ask people as well, teach me something that uh, I don't know and I give them like a minute or two. And what I'm really trying to understand is how well do they understand the things that they care about because I think that's really important because a lot of times things go right, things go wrong, and if you don't have the ability to care about something, it doesn't matter what it is, but something, um, you're basically like a sociopath and you're not a very productive person in, 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 in a working context. Um, you know, when I think about investing, um, I actually don't particularly like the business of investing as a team. I'm not very good at it. Um, you're not a good team player? I'm not. To be very honest with you, I'm not. Um, you know, I, I was looking at this recently, but um, I've made three massive investments outside of social capital. Uh, the Warriors, which by the way, I mean, honestly guys, I've done, so, come stop. <laughs> <laughs> guys, you know, I, I've helped start businesses in cancer, diabetes, education, nothing. See, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> And the Golden State Warriors gets the largest cheer? <laughs> I mean, it's cool. Let me, let's see. Uh, but anyway, so the Warriors, uh, Bitcoin. Um, and two, <laughs> uh, and um, in 2013 and 14, um, I made this, I, I, I did something which um, created a lot of tension amongst my friends at Facebook because I basically sold all my Facebook stock and bought Amazon. Um, <laughs> we have one Prime subscriber here. That's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, but uh, all those decisions I made by myself. And by the way, when I made all those decisions, totally derided, uh, ridiculed by the people around me. Nobody understood. Um, and I just felt out of kilter, and so I had to do it. Um, those things, by the way, have compounded at 75% a year. And these are sizable things. So I think I'm just much better when I make investments by myself. Um, not that that's a particularly great thing. Yeah. Where I'm much better as a team is when I'm enabling really talented technical people or I'm partnering with really talented technical people to think about big ideas and to feel like they're fearless and that I'll have their back that, so that we can go and tackle problems. That's where I think I'm a really good team member. So um, for me, um, I think investing is a little overrated, quite honestly, because I think there's a lot of situational luck and timing that's overlooked. I also think it's fundamentally a solitary thing, and the team orientation, I think, is probably a little misguided and oversold. Um, but team building around companies and ideas, that's fabulous. Uh, there's nothing better. There's really, really... I mean, orders of magnitude away from anything else. It's the most incredible thing in the world. So if you don't have teams and like, if you're investing by yourself, how do you check yourself? Like, how do you make sure I you venture? I'm, I'm afraid to, I'm not afraid to be wrong. Like, I just think being wrong is overrated in the North American philosophy. We, we really, look, 
there are certain times where you can't be wrong. If you're a pilot, you can't be wrong. Right? Or a surgeon. I get that. Or if you're, no, it's not true. Actually, surgeons make mistakes all the time. They leave, you know, utensils or whatever, not utensils, <laughs> but the, the things inside yeah. the people's bodies. I mean, you know, um, but I, I, I get how certain professions need to value the sort of like the binary distinction of right and wrong. Um, but I think for most of us, um, it's really sort of like you're either learning or you're not learning. And I think we right now, we create too much of a, like a God complex around being right. And we don't celebrate enough like the fun process of iterating, you know, and being able to like be in the grind with people and like, like laugh when things don't work, that it's not like the end of the world. Um, so I, I, I think to me, like that's probably the single biggest thing that people have to uh, get comfortable with, which is like just you're, le you're learning and you either care about that or you don't. Like if you're a good entrepreneur, like we were talking about this in the green room, nobody should grow up to be an entrepreneur. I'm sorry, that's, that's, like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you should grow up to be really angry about something in your life that you wanna fix or change to make better. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, because then all of a sudden, like, you're not going to give up when something doesn't work, when something is wrong. You're just going to keep working at it because it's learning. But that mindset is only possible in that context. So I, I don't know. I, I just think, like, that's a, that's a really important thing to really internalize. Um, Starting from there, like, there, there's a lot of kids here who are, like, in, what, first year, second year? You know, high school. Are you... Do you have to bring your parents here to sign the letters? <laughs> um, but, you know, like, the, the world's changed a little bit since you were in school when you were doing homework with an abacus. Uh, <laughs> like, what? Fuck you, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> That's one. It's a thousand dollars. That tasted so good, though, that thousand dollars. My gosh. Wow. <laughs> yes. Um, but what advice would you give kids going into the workforce now? Like, the graduating, how should they think about the world they're going into? Um, I think it's really, really, again, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to give you a very psychological answer. Um, I think there's a massive risk that so many of us are unfortunately raised in an environment where we can be tricked to feeling inadequate. Okay. You spend 90% of your time on your phone, I'm sorry, but I bet you at points in time, I'm sorry, just, I'm just gonna ask, just be really honest. How many, t at any point in the day, do you feel inadequate when you're on the phone and like interacting in whatever sites you're doing, or jealous or naive, like envious? Please, please, please be honest. Yeah. Yeah, everybody, okay. <laughs> Could you imagine the impact of that when that gets compounded day after day, year after year? So my advice is really like find ways of breaking that cycle. And I don't really know the answer. I think friends are the answer. I think being outside, as cheesy as that may sound, is the answer. I think like... What if you're in Canada and it's cold in the winter? <laughs> you can still be outside. There's lots of things to do in the snow. But, but <laughs> right? You can harvest maple syrup. Uh, <laughs> You can go fishing in an ice pond. You can hunt a polar bear. I mean, so many things. There's so many things, DJ. Um, my, but my, my point is, like, um, I think, like, if you're, if you're in your teens and 20s right now, I think the most important thing is to figure out how you yourself are wired and to, to try to basically get those things addressed because it is in a most amplified state than it's ever been. Like, I did not grow up deeply insecure. In success and no in my... No one would ever say you're insecure. Huh? No one would ever say you're insecure. Oh, I'm deeply. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how do you think you become, you know, super successful? You think these people... I mean, look, I've met these people. You think these people are normal? <laughs> do you think they're like, ho-hum, I'm whole, let's be friends and have a burger? <laughs> that's, not what, that's not what these people are. Yeah. Okay? They're not. No, They're no. deeply, profoundly insecure. They manifest a lot of that by their need to find 
something that they can latch onto that makes them feel less inferior, i.e. superior. And the success tends to be proportional to that feeling. That's true. And you see a lot of people you meet, like whenever you meet somebody who's like, I'm a teacher and I'm really happy, that person is whole. <laughs> That's what it means. Okay? And when you meet like a super billionaire who's like trying to become a super bega bega billionaire, they're super insecure. <laughs> it's just true. It's okay, it's nothing wrong with that, but that's just the reality. The problem is that when I was growing up, it wasn't that big of a deal because the, the things that amplified it were minimal. They were, okay? I had a StarTac flip phone, okay? At best, I had a pager when I was in university. Yeah, you're gonna have to explain that to everybody else. I had a pager. A pager is a thing, it's like a phone, <laughs> but without things you can touch, that just has a number of the person that's calling you. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I mean, you felt really cool when you had a pager. Uh, I did. Listen to who had pagers. Cool people and drug dealers, okay? Yeah. I think there's a cool I aspired to be both. I was neither, but I aspired to be both. Okay? I aspired to be both. Um, always hustling. Always, always hustling. hustling. Um, so anyway, so like, the thing is like, great, so I, I, I was, I, I maybe felt what I felt, but I wasn't completely bombarded with things on the outside that exacerbated and amplified it. Kids today are, and I think it has an impact in, on your general state of happiness, your general state of fulfillment, your general state of belongingness. I really do, and I see it. It is a big deal. So if, if I was in high school today, look, you're gonna do what you're gonna do, you're gonna spend your time on your phones, the way you're gonna spend your time, whatever, do it. But just know that it is a drug like any other drug and you have to find ways of regulating yourself and managing yourself and finding positive outlets to replenish yourself. And don't trick yourself otherwise. Otherwise, you'll enter the workforce and you're going to be unhappy. Why do you think so many people job hop every six months, nine months? I'm sure you have friends, siblings, whatever, that are in, your, in their mid-20s. Like, why is it that the average employment rate or the average duration of employment in, for amongst you know, mid-20-year-olds and 30-year-olds is like half of what it used to be. Oh, I'm unsatisfied. Oh, I'm unfulfilled. Well, is it that all of a sudden like something is cataclysmically changed in world capitalism? I'm sorry, but the answer is no. It's that your internal sense of fulfillment and belongingness has definitely changed because there are other people around you that can amplify your sense that they are happier, but they're not. They're marketing happiness better than you. So what do you do about it? Like, you know, you're growing like You gotta work on hard problems. I really think hard problems Thank means you. that you find out something that really upsets you about your, the human condition in which you grew up in, or the human condition that surrounded your family, or your friends, or something. Because it is deeply motivational, because it forces you to course correct all of that stuff that I just talked about. All of those potholes get filled in. You know, if you have a parent that's suffering from cancer, and you can commit your life to doing something, not only will you honor that person in the, actually the best way possible, you will probably impact enormous numbers of lives positive, positively, and oh, by the way, you will be mega super deca rich if that's what you want. Because you can't not be impactful in a place like that and not make money as a byproduct. But if you're yeah. like, man, I'm really mad about scooters, and I've got to solve the scooter crisis. You're actually playing a charade about trying to be an entrepreneur and arbitraging what is obvious. It's probably not going to work. You're probably going to fail. And there's zero chance that when the going gets rough, you don't just quit. Because I'm just sorry, I don't understand the boundary condition where that matters to you. You know, you may be a person that loves to live in the outdoors and you may have all these memories when you were young of how like you felt whole and complete and safe when you were there. And now you see the earth just getting shredded apart. And so you decide to do something in climate change. Awesome, do that. That energy will guide you. That'll course correct it. It'll get your insecurities out the way. You'll be able to tell all your friends, you know what, I get it. You're gonna do your thing. You're gonna market your happiness. I'm doing this and I'm actually happy. 
and I'm gonna work at it, and it could be 12 years, 15 years, and something may happen, something may not happen, but I'll feel like I did the right thing for my son. That's the solution, hard things that matter. Let's go fix the hard things that matter. Let's go figure out how to like eradicate this like virulent strain of populism that's emerging in the world. Why are people so angry? Why are people so unhappy? Let's fix the boundary conditions for them. Let, yeah. Let's show them a better path. That's what you are, should be doing. You are so smart. You have yeah. to allocate your time to these problems. So find the thing that upsets you and pisses you off and go fix it. Do you have any mental models you keep to like sort of separate out like, hey, these are hard problems worthwhile versus like, you know what, don't worry about this hard problem or you're going down the wrong path? There's never a going down the wrong path because that's learning. But we have things that we basically dot on a line of now-ish to never-ish. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like there are just certain things that would be bananas if we could figure it out, but I just think are just truly difficult with the toolkit that we have today, like meaning the toolkit of physics and math and science and our understanding of materials, et cetera. So some of, those, some of these interesting hard problems are just not for today. Um, and, I, and, and despite like a lot of the, I think like the PR hype around some of these things, like, you know, like uh, the, for every year, like the last 10 years, quantum computing is like next year. Cold fusion. You know, cold fusion is next year. So there, there's a couple of these things that I just think are, are very difficult. Um, but then there's a bunch of stuff that's more today. What we do is the following. We basically sit around now and we ideate. And we generate a bunch of ideas on a whiteboard. And um, then what we do is we try to filter. And what we do by filtering is we get experts. So we go to Xerox Park, we go to Stanford, we go to MIT. We have about 40 or 50 like sort of profs and PhDs and postdocs who know something about a lot, their thing very well. And then they teach us. And we sit around and we learn and we learn and we learn and we document and we learn. And then we try to decide, like, is this interesting enough for us to pursue? And then when we do that, what we do is and we say, well, what, how do we learn more? Sometimes we launch experiments. So we'll go and do a science project. We'll go and you know, get a couple of you know, master's students to go and run some experiments for us. We collect the data. We see what it's doing. Other times, we'll go get a financial person to go and look at a market and say, is there a company we could buy to help us accelerate, whatever. Um, and then we sit around, we sit around, and we wait so that we're not impulsive. Because the minute we make one of these decisions, they're probably 15-year, 20-year decisions, and we have to get it right. And it's not about the first 50 or $100 million, because whatever. It's about the next 500, 700, a billion dollars we have to put behind an idea. There, we have to be right. We can't be wrong, right? So like you could say, blah, climate change. But unless you're precise, you're going to burn a lot of money, which many people have. You could say, blah, internet access for everybody. But unless you get to the right answer in the first version of the problem, you're going to burn an enormous amount of money. So that's our process. We ideate, we learn, we refine, we experiment, and then we basically create a map of how we want to pull it off, and we jam, jam, nice. rip it in. And it's okay to be wrong. Yeah, I, I think like the, the, I say all the, the time, um, changing your mind is free. I know you think it's not. Think about that because you probably have like, imagine how hard it is for some of you once you make a decision to change your mind. Because you're so fixated on like, oh my God, I just, I, I made a decision. Well, changing my mind, it's, like, it's like, look at these pants. I love these pants. And then, you know, like your girlfriend says, ah, you know, these are not nice pants. And you're like, no, these are great pants. <laughs> no, these are the best pants. But changing your mind is free. Okay, whatever. You don't like the pants. Change the pants. Now, that's a stupid example. But it's like, you know, in, in, in business and when you're in a startup, like, it's so important. Change your mind. Um, and like, you just touched on, like, you know, if you're working hard problems, being wrong is okay. Because in you've fact, made incremental it's progress. It's necessary. Yeah. In fact, it's so crucial. Like, if you're working on something that's really hard, you have to be failing a lot. Because otherwise, you're just basically making a bunch of silly, riskless decisions that you know are probably bound to be right. But that just means you're going to fail anyways. Yeah, and you don't create something new. You don't add value to society. Think about like the people who win a Nobel Prize. What do you think their process is? They're creating something foundational in the world that gets recognized 20, 30 years later. But they are fundamentally people who have to orient their minds around failure, failure, failure. 
right? Because it's, it's, they're swinging for the fences each time they try to run some experiment. And I think working on hard problems is basically requires that mentality, which is also why I think it's so much fun. Because then it also allows you to clarify who you work with. Imagine the people you collect around you. Colleagues again, not family, colleagues, not friends, coworkers, right? Uh, who also fine. then care. You're learning together, you're living the struggle together, there's camaraderie together. Man, what an incredible feeling. There's nothing better, literally yeah. nothing better. Definitely. Um, so now these kids are going into hackathon. They're not trying to fail by Sunday. They're trying to figure out something. How do you, how do you start? Like, you know, you have big problems that you want to tackle. Like, I don't want to solve small problems. Like, I don't want to build a website. Like, okay, you can't, you can't, you can't solve global warming in a weekend, right? Like, it, it's like eating an elephant one bite at a time. Where do you start? Trunk, tail? Um, well. This is, this is the entree to a really bad off-color joke, so I'm not going to go there. Yes. Uh, I'm going to answer it in a different way. Um, let's say, is anybody going to work on something related to drones? In the hackathon, I can't see. <laughs> All right, fuck you. <laughs> One two. guy? Two. Oh, you have two guys? Okay, we have two No, guys. no, two grand. Oh, two grand. No, two thousand. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is, like, I just think that there are probably, I, I would encourage you um, to do two things. One is be realistic, which is, I don't intend to give you some, you know, glib thing about, yeah, go solve breast cancer in the next 48 hours, because it's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> it's not true. And uh, it's not accurate. Um, but I do think what's important is something else, which is go prove to yourself that you can start something and finish it and not be afraid of being judged and failing. So it doesn't really matter, to be quite honest, what you do in the next 48 hours in my mind. It matters that you take away that thread. I started, I created a plan, I broke it down into small bits, I finished it, I'm proud of it, and I don't care how people judge it. Now take that and amplify that, and then go work on something hard and do it over the next 10 years. I think what you said about like having an end goal and having a bigger picture and then breaking it down to pieces is like really, really important because you can't, you can't solve everything, but if you don't have a plan, if you don't break it up into pieces, like, you don't know where you're trying to get to. With, with the stuff you're doing right now, like, how are you breaking it up into pieces? Like, it's, it's like you're chewing a big problem already, like solving hard problems and helping other people solve other hard problems. You start with getting information, but where else are you going with it? Um, where else do we get information? Like, what else are you doing? Like, that's, that's stage one of the plan, like, get information. How else do you, like, how do you, expand on that? Like, how do you help these guys figure out how to break problems down? How do you, how do you define an MVP? How do you define, like, what's the, the problem to break down? It's, it's a really, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. It really just depends on the idea. So, for example, like with you, yeah. right? Like, when we were working together, what was our true core MVP? It was basically, can this sensor be viable, right, under a lot of different conditions? Yep that would have mimicked real life. Um, and so you guys, I think, did a great job of, and it took a, 18 months, basically, to break the problem down into all these little bits that got us to, yeah, the sensor is roughly functional. Yeah. Um, so it really just depends on the problem itself. Cause it, but I think in, in, in all of these things, the answer is always the same, which is uh, it's a really unglamorous uh, thing that your litmus test should be Will you feel embarrassed or will people like chide you for that thing? That's the right MVP. <laughs> That's always the right MVP. When the answer is yes to that. Huh? When the answer is yes to that yeah. question. If you will feel yeah. embarrassed yeah. or people will laugh at you at this thing as a proof of concept, that is what the MVP is. Yeah. Not the thing that's grandiose that answers most of the questions where you feel great you know, telling somebody over a beer 
That's not the MVP. In fact, that's like counterintuitively, it's probably like you're less likely to be successful. Because you're going to give a complicated answer to all these things and features and functionalities and blah, 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 blah. The point is you're never going to get it. And uh, you just have to hack something together and ship it. Yeah, fucking ship it. Something like that. <laughs> um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have used the F word there, but yeah. <laughs> Definitely, definitely taught me that one. Um, but a couple of things. One, I always appreciate when I have conversations about you, with you, is sort of re <laughs> No, 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 that was accidental. That was completely my fault. <laughs> it, is that you, you always end up helping reframe the problem and helping sort of think about something a little bit bigger so that you, you attack it from a different angle. How, how, do, how do people practice that? Where did you get that skill? Like, what are, what are things that they can try to help like, up level or think in a bigger I, level? I have never been a very linear person, and I don't say that in some like, grandiose way. Um, I've always been a little random and haphazard. So that was partly because I think, again, I've always felt an unease with the way that I was, and I have tried to um, ask questions and learn about things that made me feel comfortable. And I always gave myself time to meander. I'm not a big book reader. I've said this a lot. Um, because I don't want other people's 250 pages of you know, expert opinion on something. Because I don't think they probably have it. I love articles. I love journals. I love Wikipedia. I love the web. I love reading blogs. Things that are succinct force people to tell the truth. Things that are long allow people to tell their opinion. And so, like, I've always fed this thing of just, like, there's randomness is good for you. It's very, very good for you. Finding people around you that you don't necessarily get along with in the most obvious ways is good for you. Getting yourself out of your comfort zone and, like, learning about yourself is good for you. Oh, there is one book that I would recommend, which I've read end to end, and I think... Uh, for me, and I'm just going to tell you, in this immigrant condition or like the, the psychology of how I helped myself, it's called yeah. the Adult Children of Alcoholics. And I would really encourage anybody who finds any of the first part of what I spoke about interesting to read that book because it is written in three parts. And part one is what have you lived? And it goes into so much detail that it was just stunning to me how much of that I had lived and for the first time in my life when I had thought that I was suffering alone, I realized so many other people had gone through this, so much so that this woman in the 70s could write a definitive book about it. Okay, that's section one. Then section two is it then says, here's probably all the traits that you brought with you into your adult life. And so many of them rang true. And then section three was, here's how you can start to put together a plan to help fix yourself. Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's the only book that I really would recommend. And it's not for adult, it's not just because you're, you grew up in an alcoholic family. I just think it's like any, any kind of dysfunction, it's incredibly helpful the way. But otherwise, I meander, I read a lot, I ask a lot of random questions, um, and I try to give myself um, other ways of exploring my intelligence. Working on yourself is a really meaningful way of working on your intelligence. You know, being alone sometimes is a really powerful way of clarifying the things that you think are important to you. These are not all things anymore that are valued, right? We've stripped it all away. We really have in the last 10 years stripped it all away. And in many ways, we've amplified the worst parts of it. So I would just encourage you to sort of like work on yourself. I, j I really think like the next great entrepreneur that spouts from this place is probably the most whole among us. Wow. Yeah. I know, we're both flawed. So I have a question for you, but before I get into that, um, you guys are supposed to submit questions via Twitter. Somebody's going to go filter those things out and then text it to me, and then I'm going to ask him those questions. And then he may answer them. Uh, but um, while you figure out how to do t questions, um, random question, what are you guys doing at Social Capital, and what are you guys doing here with Social Capital? Um, well, we've always had a fellows program. That fellows program has been about picking um, some of the most capable computer scientists and directing them 
into our portfolio and directing them to work with us. So you get the chance to work at companies like Intercom, Slack, um, Athos, etc. Yeah, we're hiring. We're awesome to work at. So Ask our interns. We're here for that. We're here to hire for our own team. Um, so that's why we're here. And I'm here because I'm Canadian and I was, it was a great chance to come see my mom in Toronto and then come see you guys. Um, and then um, what's happening at Social Capital is um, just about honoring what we started. And, um, you know, it's really interesting to read the press cycles and see how inaccurate they are um, and to feel kind of like whole enough to not care to care. Um, I mean, yeah, we've done an incredible job. Um, we've, in the job of investing, we've made many, many, many billions of dollars. In the job of incubating hard problems, we've done, in my, in my opinion, even more work that I'm proud of. And the future will be really focusing on how to do that better and aligning around a core team of people that want to be surrounded by engineers and product managers and data scientists and just get back to building. And, you know, look, I've, I spent the last two years glad handing around the world, meeting rich, powerful people, and I was gutted by it. Same feeling you had before when you were leaving Mayfield? Yeah, same thing. I'm not a money person. It doesn't, doesn't really get me. Yeah, and and a, there's been several times in my life where I've succumbed to it. But I, every time I reconcile who I really am as a man and as a human being, I come back to my core truth, which is I'm a person that's a builder. I like building on hard things. I like surrounding myself with earnest people that care about hard things because they share that same passion, anger, energy. And I like learning. And it makes me really happy. So that's what's happening at Social Capital. It's more about um, having the fidelity and strength to honor what we started. Sweet. All right, I guess I'm waiting for questions to come in, apparently. All right. Hetshaw asks, Chumat, if I win Hack the North, can you transfer Curry to the Raptors? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, yeah. yeah. Oh, why, why would we do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's just stupid. Guy in the front, go. Okay, so uh, I'm a huge fan of yours, by the way. You had a, had a An eye of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has this kind of like undulating wave that I can see from here <laughs> that's really comforting to me. <laughs> so my question to you is, like, what, what is the methodology for driving social change without embracing exponential technology? Oh, wow. Honestly, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, wow, I don't. <laughs> no, I, I think you can't. I think the people that own these next-gen technologies will decide the fate of the world. Oh, that's, there's no doubt. Gene editing? I mean, like, think about that. You know? Think about the input. Look, I, 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 have the, I, have the, I have the honor of working with a company that's working in AI on something, and Half the time, I'm stunned at the compute power that we're creating. Half the time, I think, what happens if this fabric gets into the wrong hand? And I don't know the right answer. I, you know, I work with another company that does a lot of stuff with three-letter agencies in the United States. And sometimes I wake up and I'm like, we're doing God's work. And sometimes I wake up and I want to vomit. Well, that's life. And you know what? <laughs> I'm glad to be in the sturm und drog of that emotion, honestly, because at least on the edges, I can help be a part of some of that decision making. But abdicating that and like not being there is not the right answer because somebody else is going to do it and somebody else may not have my moral and ethical perspective. Not that mine's better than anybody else's, but it's just different. It's my own. And so I'd rather reflect my own than somebody else's. Well, at this point, don't you think that it would actually, like, the fact that you said that someone else would do it, doesn't that mean that it strips you of your ethical and moral? No, it just means that I have to work harder so that it's my turn. It's like, it's like, it's like kind of like, you know, like a Boxing Day sale at Zeller's. Okay? <laughs> and there's a single line. You've got to wake up early, man, and fight for that space in line, because if they give it away to somebody else, that's not right. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Does Zellers even exist? No. Is that a bad example? 
Oh, so there's people. How out of touch am I? How many people do you think I have buying me clothes right now? Also, there's a whole Shopping bunch of people in here who are God, not from so Canada. God, it's so sad. What is a better example? Give me a good example. Walmart, Zara. <laughs> Zara. Yeah, Zara. Zara. Yeah, Zara. Zara. There's a good one. All right. So one of the questions that came in is that how do you find the balance between being insecure enough to be successful and being not insecure enough to be happy? I, I don't, don't try to be balanced. Just be aware. What does what balance mean? Who cares about balance? Nobody likes balanced people. You want a whole person, but a whole person isn't boring. You know what I'm saying? Don't be boring. It's not about negating it all. It's about honoring it. It's about knowing that it's there. And it's about helping you to become better with it. I don't know. Just not felt like yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Makes me feel better because I'm still bouncing back between security and insecurity all the time. And at least now you can trigger on it and figure out what you want to do about in, it. In t yeah. At times. Not, yeah. not all the time and not very well, but at times. You don't repeat questions if you're taking them from the side. Oh, okay. True. The question is, he has an idea, but he's afraid. He doesn't think there's hope. He doesn't know what to do. Um, dude, I don't know what to do. Um, so, but I'm just going to do. I think you can't worry about the finality and the end state too much. Like... Be very selfish for a second and think to yourself, if doing this will make you happy, let's just assume the world is screwed. You might as well be happy until it all ends anyways. <laughs> Shouldn't you? Shouldn't you? I mean, well, there's, there's no point, there's no point you know, bemoaning it because let's just say it's a fait accompli. What are you going to do? I would just say be happy. And my version of being happy is I want to work on things that I care about. So I wouldn't get too fatalistic about all this stuff. I think we are evolving things in an incredible way as a race and as a species. The big problem today is that these systems that are supposed to work for the many really only work for the few and they're too asymmetric. This is why when you fix a hard problem, what you really do is you level the playing field. That's something that's worthwhile getting in balance. And so I would not get too hung up on how screwed the world is. Instead, I would kind of tell myself, listen, Things are going to happen, good and bad. I have a responsibility, if I'm capable, of allocating some of the goodness to as many people as possible. And honestly, dude, if you're afraid of all this stuff and it freaks you out, get to work. No, like right now, get to work. You shouldn't even be here. You should be working. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, you cannot get caught up in your own underwear on this stuff because it's debilitating. Yeah, don't worry about it. Do food distribution. Like, you guys, you, we, have, we have a value at our company called Be a Player, which basically goes back to saying, like, you have a problem. Like, the first question you should be asking is, like, what am I going to do about it? And then go do it. Like, you can't wait for somebody else to solve the problem, right? Um, so you can take the first step. And it's not You're possible here. to care about 10 things equally. That's not <laughs> true, right? Let's just say you had three pets, a dog, a hamster, and a rat. Don't lie to me and tell me you'd like the rat more than the dog. Dogs kick ass. Rats suck. Hamsters get eaten. There's a priority. Okay? Ideas are the same. That was well played. That was well done. I mean, that, that person cannot be an engineer. No, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> Your mastery of rhetoric there is fantastic. Can you, the question is, Canadian brain drain, how do we combat it? Um, Two hypocrites. Well, why did I leave? <laughs> I left Canada because I didn't feel I was, uh, I felt at home. Meaning, on the one hand, I felt at home because it had raised me and had given me so many things. But at a, at, a, at a much more core level about what I wanted to do for the future, I did not feel at home. I did not feel it was a place that could embrace risk and failure. And I did not feel like it was a place that I could surround myself with the people that would allow me to build what I was capable of building. Um, I don't think that that's been fixed yet here. So how do you fix it? Uh, I think at one level, we have to fix the taxation system because unfortunately or not, there's a huge incentives that comes with 
taking the kind of risk that we take. And it's well established in the United States, and it's not here. It's just not. Um, and then the second thing is that I think that culturally, you have to find ways of like organizing around people that don't celebrate checking boxes and being middle of the road, being in balance. Symmetry is valued in Canada. Come along, get along, everybody's nice and hunky-dory in the middle, right? It's true. Being an outlier and being spiky is not valued. And so a lot of people feel out of place. And if you're in technology, you're probably predisposed to being that kind of spiky person. And all of a sudden you see these shiny objects like Facebook and Uber and Google in Silicon Valley and you're like, wow, I'll be understood. I'll be around my tribe. I'll find connection and affiliation. So that's what you have to solve. You have to solve the financial incentives and you have to solve the social incentives in community. Then people won't go. One, the government can control. And two is like places like this, you know, and like how these places evolve over time can do that. And I don't think it's an overnight solve either. Like it takes time for building the decades. ecosystem. Yeah, that decades. can support startups. Um, I was pulling out of, I was, I was, this was yesterday. I was at uh, some shopping center near my house in Palo Alto, okay? And I was pulling out uh, of, a lot, of, a, of a stall or whatever, and this woman was on her phone, totally oblivious to me, kept going right through. And I have a, I have a um, Tesla. Tesla. Um, but I get these drops. And the latest software drop that I got basically stopped the car for me. Wow. Because I was just pulling out, and it made a decision and it intervened. You know how thankful I am? It also turned out, I mean, it's also true my kids were in the car, so it would have been a you know, really bad thing, but these are the kinds of expert systems we're building. You know, there, there are people right now that are like doing an incredible job. You give them a, a small amount of data and an image, and boom, they'll know whether they can detect a tumor or whatever. All these things are possible because of AI, so why fear that stuff? We need a better compute fabric so that you could do it faster and at a better scale. Um, I think, so, that's kind of my view. I think, I think this whole thing of like the robots taking over is a little overblown. In 50 years, we're gonna have to worry about something like that, but not now. Cool, well, we're out of time. I have a bunch more questions about this stuff, but. I, I, can I just say? Um, okay, the blonde, the blonde lady up the there. Sh waving. <laughs> okay, so you talk a lot about being happy and working on something that we care about. You talk about how everything is possible, This, this question is not going to go in a good place, huh? She's going to laugh. I mean, we, you can already tell, right? Everybody knows. Go ahead. Sorry, finish your question. But, but the thing is, you're massively rich. And the thing is, most of us will not make it. You've made it. Your net worth is $1.2 billion. And so I think my question is, isn't it more important to know how to become happy with yourself and how to come to terms with yourself when Um, but did you just, did you miss the point of what I said? That is what I said. <laughs> I don't think that this is a, I'm sorry, but like, look, I got exceptionally lucky, okay? Uh, am I proud of it? Yeah. Is that a, a number inaccurate? Yeah, it's actually much, much better than that, okay? <laughs> uh, I have nothing to be ashamed of, okay? So, uh, None of that matters. That's my whole point. It doesn't matter. Don't label me by that number, which is inaccurate to the downside by many multiples, okay? <laughs> but it doesn't matter. What I'm trying to tell you is that it matters that you realize we are living in a world that has the disproportionate percent propensity. Whether you're rich, poor, black, white, male, female, gay, straight, doesn't matter, to make you feel unhappy. And yes, I do think it is the most important thing. And there are different weights and measures for different people. And you owe it to yourself to learn about what it means for you and do it. I've started to do it because I got to these checkboxes and didn't feel happy. So yeah, I'm agreeing with you. There's nothing I said that is correlated with all that stuff that you just talked about. It has nothing to do with being rich. All right. Anyways, can I just say one last yeah, thing? Yeah, absolutely. Let's close it out. Okay, one last thing before, I, before you guys go. Um, go read that book if you care. <laughs> can you repeat the name of the book so that everybody Ad, catches it again? Ad, adult Children of Alcoholics. 
Um, go read it. Um, I mean, not all of you need to read it, but I'm just saying for some <laughs> of you. Um, and then take the time to take care of yourself. And then you'll be able to do whatever the hell it is that you want to do. And I wish you the best of luck. And I wish you all the skill in the world, but I wish you really the best of luck.